maybe if you think of a thing long enough and you believe in it, maybe it becomes real. Maybe all the things we were afraid of as kids, you know, all the monsters like Frankenstein, huh? Wolfman, mummy. Welcome to Now Playing's Night Shift Collection Series. It's going to turn your life around, Dick. I guarantee it. Continuing the Stephen King movie retrospective, your hosts Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob will be watching and reviewing Graveyard Shift. We're going to hell. To go! Cat's Eye. I, uh, I don't think you got the guts. I just don't think you got the guts. And the Night Shift Collection short films, The Woman in the Room, The Boogeyman, and Disciples of the Crow. I was responsible for the deaths of my children. You see, they were murdered. These podcasts will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Oh, Philly sticks. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, boss, did you turn the sound up? Today we're discussing Cat's Eye, starring Drew Barrymore, James Woods, Candy Clark, Alan King, Robert Hayes, and directed by Louis Teague. I'm Arnie, the now-playing co-host who will never quit no matter what you do to my wife. (laughs) Stuart in L.A. And this is the host that uses his left tit for a coaster, Jacob. That can lead to some nasty burns. And we are back Continuing our look at Stephen King's Night Shift short story adaptations. Last time we did three short stories that were adapted to three short student films. Today we're looking at two short stories plus an original story that came together for an anthology film with Cat's Eye. And I think it's just important to note right off the bat, we're going in the order in which King wrote the stories... So we're still in 1978, but Cat's Eye itself is kind of riding the heels of Creepshow. Yeah, this is not the first Stephen King anthology. It won't be the last either, for that matter. I think at the tail end of a popular trend of the early 80s is all of a sudden, for reasons quite unknown, because they never had much box office success, but there was a lot of interest in short storytelling in a feature. We had Twilight Zone the movie. We had... Twilight Zone, the TV show, back on the air, as well as Tales from the Dark Side. We had Creep Show. Yeah, for whatever reason, people wanted to see short horror stories all strung together, and this is one of them. And I'm a fan of this type of horror story. I mean, be it Twilight Zone, the movie, Tales from the Dark Side, or Tales from the Hood, and we'll get to Creep Show, but I've seen so many of these... I mean, this is kind of the horror I grew up on when I couldn't go to the video store. Monsters, Tales from the Dark Side, all of those anthology, late-night series, even Freddy's Nightmares, to a degree, had this kind of feel. That was horrible. Oh, don't bring that up. But, you know, I was the one that recommended Trick or Treat, so, yes. It's like Campfire Tales. I think that's what it truly is like. If one doesn't end up being good, maybe the next one will. There's just something fun about gathering around the fire and hearing these very simple kind of morality tales play out. I I always just kind of like it just as a concept. But again, I stress, and the director did as well in the commentary for this DVD, they don't make money. He thinks, his theory is, it's a lot of hard work 
Uh, you have to learn a lot of characters, and then you have to give up on them pretty quickly. That it's not worth the expenditure of energy when you're watching a feature to learn so many characters. Uh, you know, I, th- I think it's all in the framing of it, how you're telling that story. If you're trying to connect them, make a larger story, maybe. I don't know. I, anthologies, you know, I've seen Creep Show. I, I think of Four Rooms. I, maybe we'll do a Tarantino retrospective someday, but... I was able to appreciate each of those just for each story. And coming from a comic book background, a lot of comic anthologies. And yeah, the danger always is you might have one good one and then you're going to have a bunch of mediocre ones and uh, some not so great ones. Even with New York stories, I mean, great directors there. there, There's one stinker in the bunch. One of the things that I love about anthologies is how they always try to tie the stories together when tales from the dark side it was the kid who has to tell his story before he's killed by i forget what the woman was babysitter stepmother something in creep show it literally is a comic book anthology and they just turn the page and here we have three stories that all involve the same tabby cat It wasn't supposed to be that. This was initiated by Dino De Laurentiis. We've discussed him before. but Yes, back with Evil Dead, that bastion of good filmmaking. But he came to Stephen King and said, hey, we need to write a star vehicle for Drew Barrymore. She was so great in Firestarter. She's going to be a big star. Write something for Drew. Well, he wasn't wrong. He was just 10 years too early. <laughs> and he wasn't wrong about that, but King didn't listen, apparently. Because I hardly think that, I mean, Drew plays second fiddle to this cat here. Yeah. From the title on, we're paying attention to the tabby and where the cat is going. What Drew's doing, well, it remains a mystery for much of the movie. (laughs) She's doing coke at 13. Yeah. That that was not brought up. Uh, The director had vague memories of Drew. He said that she was, quote, in a transitional period of her life. And that I guess it's one way of calling it. That's kind of like when you say you went to the hospital for exhaustion after you <laughs> OD'd. But yeah, she was transitioning from being a reactionary child star into actually learning the craft of acting. And he didn't say anything more than the fact that everything here was designed to be the star vehicle for her. This was supposed to be the Drew Barrymore movie, but I gotta say, no, it really does come off more as a animal picture. It's about a cat. I've actually seen this one before. I've seen a third of it. And it was way back in high school. I don't know if it's a half day or what. It's one of those days. Teacher just puts a movie in. And we watched the last story of this film. And so I just assumed, I thought, oh, here, I'm just going to play the climax of this film. I assumed, coming into this that we were going to get a whole lot of Drew Barrymore and this troll and this cat. I did not expect it to be Homeward Journey or Milo and Otis, whatever those cat and dog movies <laughs> yes. are. Yes. And I've seen this one many times before, but the only part I could really remember was there was a troll who would suck Drew Barrymore's breath, and there was James Woods in Quitter's Inc. That was my memory. Yeah, I, I agree. I saw this one a lot, and I'll put it this way. I loved one of these stories when I was a kid, and now that I've rewatched it, I feel like the two that I neglected are much more preferred than the one I liked as a kid. But uh, there are three stories, two of which came from Night Shift, Quitters, Inc., The Ledge, and then the final story, I think it's referred to as General, written directly here for the screen. It was Stephen King, never published before or since. And it should be said, I mean, there's a reason Stephen King was so involved. He was working very closely with Dino De Laurentiis because at this point, 1984, King had his sights set on something other than a typewriter. 
as with so many, he just wants to direct. Yes, the, the director for Cat's Eye mentioned the fact that Stephen King was on the set of this film every day. And Teague was no stranger to King material. He had made Cujo, but he did not discuss Cujo with King when he made that film. But here, King showed up for three weeks of rewrites, and they hashed it out. And then every day on this set, what Louis Teague, the director, says was he was being studied because King was trying to learn the craft of directing. The reason why this movie was allowed to be, the reason why King is so kind to it, I think, because he's so generally uh, dismissive of film adaptations of his work. But this one he really worked hard on because Dino De Laurentiis would give him the green light next to make Maximum Overdrive. We're going to talk about this one when we get towards the end of the Night Shift uh, movies. But yes, Stephen King's directorial debut is coming soon. Well, without further ado, Arnie, uh, give us the rundown. What does the cat do in Cat's Eye? In Wilmington, North Carolina, a rabid dog who may or may not be named Cujo is chasing after a brown-gray cat. To escape, the cat jumps aboard a delivery truck, which takes the feline to New York City. In the Big Apple, the cat has a vision of a young girl, played by Drew Barrymore, asking the cat for help. The cat has to return to Wilmington. But before it can, it's captured and taken to... Quitters Incorporated, a company that helps people stop smoking through somewhat brutal means. Founded by a mafia family to honor their former Don who died from lung cancer, Quitters Incorporated will make sure you never smoke again. Longtime smoker Dick Morrison, played by James Woods, has come to Quitters Incorporated to quit smoking, and the former mafioso named Donetti, his case manager, shows him the cat on an electrified floor dancing to the pain. If Dick smokes, his wife will go in that room. If he smokes again, his mentally challenged daughter, also played by Drew Barrymore, goes in for the shocks. On a third offense, Dick's wife will be raped. And if he smokes a fourth time, well, Donetti will just have Dick killed. Dick does a pretty good job, but in a traffic jam, he sneaks a smoke and is spotted by Quitters Incorporated constant surveillance. The shocks to his wife are enough, and Dick never smokes again, though he is given some diet pills lest he gain weight, in which case Donetti will cut off his wife's little finger. But during Dick's reunion with his wife, the cat escapes and jumps the Staten Island Ferry to go to Atlantic City, where chronic gambler Cressner, played by Kenneth McMillan, makes a wager if the cat can survive crossing the heavily trafficked street. The cat does survive, winning Cressner 2000, so Cressner takes the cat as a good luck charm. Up in Kressner's apartment, the casino owner and crime boss is facing down Johnny Norris, played by Airplane's Robert Hayes. Norris has been sleeping with Kressner's wife, and the two plan to run off together. Kressner is naturally upset by this, but his gambling nature has him make Norris a wager. Kressner's men have hid enough heroin in Norris's car to put him away for a long time, but if Norris will climb out on the high ledge of Kressner's skyscraper and walk the entire circumference of the building on that ledge... Cressner will not only let Norris go, but give him $20,000 and let him take his wife. Norris reluctantly agrees and has a long trek around the building beset by pigeons and Cressner's own prankish attempts to make Norris lose his balance, but he survives the walk. Cressner is a man of his word and gives Norris the $20,000 and his wife. Well, his wife's severed head stuck in the bag along with the money. Norris attacks and gets the upper hand on Cressner, taking his thug's gun and offers Cressner a deal. If Kressner can walk the ledge, Norris will let him live. 
Cressner tries and quickly falls to the street. While Cressner's doing his walk of death, the cat escapes again and rides a train back to Wilmington where he's adopted by Amanda, played by, you guessed it, Drew Barrymore, despite her parents' reluctance to have a cat that will likely eat Amanda's pet bird. But the parents don't realize Amanda is being attacked in the night by a troll that is trying to steal her breath. There are multiple battles and the bird is killed by the troll, and the cat, now named General, is blamed and taken to a shelter to be put to sleep. But General escapes to return and battle the troll to the death. With the troll's remains proving to the parents that General saved their daughter, the cat is given a loving home as credits roll. So when the film starts off, you've just got this cat who, in the end, it'll be named General, so I'll refer to him as General, running through the streets, and it... It turns out there is an entire first act to this movie that, without the director's permission, they just cut. Although it sounds wise <laughs> that they did. I'm going to say it might seem startling to cut to the chase, to, to begin with animals running around, but I don't really like what is described as the actual prologue. Uh, what was filmed and at one point included, but yes, cut by the studio was another girl, played by Drew Barrymore, being discovered dead in her bed. The mother realizing that it was the cat that robbed her breath and chasing it around the house, blowing everything away, destroying a house, horrible property damage, chasing the cat out the door. With a machine gun. Right. The, <laughs> the mother grabbed an Uzi and tried to take out the cat. Meanwhile, and I'm not exactly sure how, we would see what becomes a major villain in the third story. The troll would make a some kind of introduction here. I'm not sure how much we would understand, but we would at least have a setup that there would be this monster that the cat would have to come back and face off with. Yeah, I, I feel like, I don't know. I don't know if I want a whole first act. I do feel like the whole framing of this anthology with this cat running to town and, you know, Drew Barrymore (laughs) appearing in the face of a mannequin saying he's out to get me. I don't know if that's a compelling mystery. I'm glad I didn't have to sit through that because that sounds horrible, that first act. (laughs) But I wish there was something more concrete here, something more that that pulled it together. I I just, you know, as we get into the different segments, I'll talk about I like those, but the framing with this cat, ah. It interrupts things. I don't know what's compelling about this child. I don't know who this child is. And by the time we find out, it's not a very satisfying answer. Well, here's what I would add. Yes, I as a frame story, sure. What What's this cat going? I like that I don't know where it's going. Is the quest going to be worth it? I'm very puzzled when we find out what his mission is and that he comes back exactly to where he left. But at the start of this, it's called Cat's Eye. Why not have a cat running around? Yeah, I wasn't confused by it. I do wish that that prologue was out there somewhere, because I can close my eyes and just picture this complete over-the-top, shrieking shrew chasing a cat with a machine gun. But by the same token, I'd like to see how they set up the troll and how they set up Drew Barrymore, because it's a little bit confusing and tenuous when... The cat gets to New York and sees a mannequin superimpose Drew Barrymore over it, telling the cat she needs help. So I could split the difference and say a little bit of setup would have helped tie these stories together and make me care about the cat's mission and the cat needing to go somewhere. But as it is, I have always just taken this as an anthology film with three different stories and not cared so much about the cat until Act 3. Yeah, I guess my problem is with this framing story, it becomes the third act. And so at that point, I I want it to matter. I want to know 
how she was, I don't know, psychically reaching out through these different means to talk to the cat. Why is she talking to the cat? Is it really her? Is it her? I don't know. There's, I have a lot of questions that I guess I shouldn't be thinking about. Yeah, it, with a Stephen King thing, is Amanda shining to yes. the cat? Is she communicating? Is she calling for help? Does Amanda know she's calling for help? What the hell's going on? I think these are questions that will never be answered. Yeah, and I just take it as it's coming from a Stephen King world. I mean, you mentioned the Cujo already chasing the cat, and later Christine almost runs it over in the street, and we'll see clips from Dead Zone. Uh, someone will be reading Pet Cemetery. I just kind of take it as ripped from the pages of Crazy Mind of Stephen King. That it starts off crazy, that all these weird supernatural things are happening. Let me put it this way. I saw this movie as a child. It never was a problem the way that it started. Maybe as an adult, if this were the first time I was seeing it, it would seem more weird. But by child logic standards, this is a great way to kick it off. Can I just say with the cameos, I liked Cujo being subtle. Christine, God, I would have liked it if they hadn't put a bumper sticker on it that says, I am Christine. Yeah, in case you missed it. I'd like it if it's an Easter egg and not a driving billboard. Yeah, there was no zoom in on the dog's, like, collar saying Cujo. I I don't know why they had to call it out with the car. Well, I don't know. I never have seen the movie Christine. To me, it is a less popular work, but I know, Arnie, it's one of your favorites. So we'll discuss it next year. Well, let's get into this first story here. Quitters, Inc., Taking place in New York or a back lot in North Carolina, starring James Woods. Here's an actor who I like a lot and can't really explain why. <laughs> I think a lot of it has to do with this movie and his 80s work. I mean, he was in that Michael J. Fox movie, uh, The Hard Way, and he was in Against All Odds, that movie that's more well known for the Phil Collins song. And He was in Against All Odds? Yeah. Yeah. Not in the Jeff Bridges role, obviously. No, no, he was the mob guy. Those aren't my go-to. I think of Videodrome and I think of Salvador, that early Oliver Stone movie. But yeah, I always think of him as just kind of an asshole, kind of like James Spader. He's always playing this asshole that you may have a little affinity for. But there's something kind of hard to read, a little cranky about the guy. Uh, The director himself said that he's funnier than his screen persona is often allowed to be, and that's why he enjoyed making this one. Was We see a funnier James Woods than we normally do, or at least I normally do. Yeah, I always think of, I mean, mean, the thing I'm most familiar with is video drums. I always get that, a sense of sly, but yeah, smirkiness that you're going to have fun, even though what he's doing may be a little, you know, off kilter. And, uh, of course, I think of Sean Young gluing his dick to his leg. <laughs> well, who doesn't think of that? I think of that every time I see Sean Young, which is surprisingly often. <laughs> really? Often? She does a lot of conventions, and I keep my dick far away from her. <laughs> As well, you should. <laughs> Not just because I'm married, but because I fear for its life. Yeah, well, yeah. She's she's one step away from her Lorena Bobbitt. <laughs> Bobbitt cuts it off. She glues it back. But here, yeah, we get a more likable James Woods, a family man James Woods, who has a really, really shitty friend who wants him to stop smoking. What kind of friend takes you to Quitters Incorporated if they know what's going on? Uh, Different from the short story, it's worth pointing out, in that it was uh, something conveyed to him, and they were kind of elusive about why and how and all of that. Here, because we need to get into the plot, it's just easier to have James Woods learning about Quitters Incorporated as he's being driven up to it. You get the sense, at least I did, by the end of this segment, 
Because this is the same friend that we see at the dinner party, right? Yep. Yeah, so you, I, I get the sense that this is just a pyramid scheme. I mean, this is the mob running it. We're going to talk about their tactics. But, hey, maybe this is how they get new clients. They they bully their old ones into bringing in their friends. But, you know, up to this point, all Stephen King adaptations, I felt, have been dramatic. I mean, maybe they haven't been all supernatural. But up to this point, Stephen King has been a guy that's presented serious stories for us to consider straight-faced. This is Stephen King doing comedy, and I gotta say, it looks well on him. I really enjoy the whole setup and the revelation that this man has been thrust into an aversion therapy clinic run by mobsters. Yeah, I, again, just like the woman in the room, this is something else I wouldn't expect from Stephen King. This seems, you know, almost satirical and, yeah, humorous. You know, it almost seems like one of those crazy, like, dystopian, like, sci-fi satires. There's not sci-fi going on in here unless you're counting this electrified floor. But, you know, it, it, it's got that feeling. It's It's got that vibe of just, like, this fun, wacky, dystopian-type future that, I don't know, this is the kind of stuff I enjoy. I do enjoy this, and... I'm glad you contextualized that a little bit, Stuart, because since we're not doing these films in chronological order that they came out, I didn't realize this was the first time that really we have King for Families. It is the first PG-13 Stephen King film. Yep. It is a Stephen King film starring that girl from E.T. Yeah. And it is a funny Stephen King film that is more accessible. Although, you know what? This came after Creepshow. Maybe Creepshow is the first. That's still R-rated, but I know what you mean. I love that as a kid, and I do feel like it's ultimately a more successful version of this very idea. I don't know how much this is for kids, or if it is for kids, it's definitely got an edge to it here. I mean, it's rather shocking. I mean, literally, it's shocking, of course, but it's it's rather shocking to what extent Donetti is willing to go to make his client be successful here. It's done from a personal angle. They lost a mafia don to lung cancer. And so they thought, hey, let's rid the world of smoking. That's kind of noble for a mobster. But then quickly, it's been perverted. I think the uh, cure is, is worse than the disease here. Attack your mentally challenged child or sexually violate your wife. I mean, my God, I, I did a double take when they were listing the punishments. Yeah, when they got to step three, raping your wife, and we got a guy who specializes in that. Yeah, whoa. <laughs> a lot of this film does seem like it's for kids, but especially this first segment, it's got an adult edge to it. Well, there's a cute little cat running around. I mean, we see it get really shocked here. I gotta give a major kudos, though, to Alan King. I mean, you're talking about raping his wife and you're shocking a cat. But Alan King keeps this whole thing moving and is so funny in this role. And this is a face I recognize, and he's been in other movies I've seen, but I do not know where I primarily know him from. It might be this. Yeah, I've seen him in things, and I think he works best playing sort of a cretinous character here. He, he, he worked for me in Goodfellas, too. I think there is a mobster sheen to the guy, but this movie did it first, and I think it features him really well here. He is an excellent salesman for this kind of aversion therapy. Yeah, he brings menace, but he's having so much fun with it. The meeting starts off with him taking out cigarettes and beating them, like he's beating down a, a thug or something like that. It's just like, you can see James Woods just wants to get out of there. The second he's seen some woman tore up in the lobby, he's had his reservations about walking through the door. And by this point, yeah, we really empathize. We don't know James Woods. We haven't had enough time to know what his job is, what he cares about, why he even wants to quit smoking. I have no idea. 
but I'm with him for the rest of this story because, yeah, I relate to his need to get away from these creeps. And I love the way that they do this, the constant surveillance. And, again, the funny way in which it's depicted. That night, James Woods wants a cigarette, sneaks down to his den, thinks he's in his home, thinks he can have a cigarette, (laughs) then wonders, is there a guy in the closet? Checks it out, doesn't see anyone, throws in the umbrella. (laughs) The guy was just hiding really well and hears him grunt. Yeah, good uh, suspense might be too strong a word, but there's a real tension to this. I mean, I don't smoke, and so I can't relate to the desire to... For me, it'd be like, oh my god, with these threats, I'm really worried because I know he's not. I really know that these guys do have the upper hand here, and that guy that's jogging past their door... In the loafers. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, we know that he's going to slip up, and we know... They're not going to be forgiving. So it is a real tension about what's going to happen, particularly when they introduce Drew. I got to say, poor little Drew. She doesn't have much to do in this. But boy, would I hate to see her, you know, shocked, you know, electrocuted. It just Or would I hate to see her try to play mentally challenged anymore? <laughs> yeah, I was wondering, was she supposed to be mentally challenged? Because that's how it came off. I didn't even realize there was Drew Barrymore here. They put this awful, I don't know, wig or something on her. It's mentally challenged through thick glasses. That is how her portrayal is being done. Yeah, it's largely costuming. Again, she was in a, quote, transitional period. She didn't know how to act. (laughs) And so they were having to teach her how to act. Did you notice that she's attending the St. Stephen's School for the Exceptional? Oh, I didn't notice that. I did notice, for some strange reason, she got a Cabbage Patch doll named Norma Jean. I don't know why Marilyn Monroe has a Cabbage Patch. There was that moment. It definitely took me. This could only be happening in 1985. But yeah, (laughs) Drew doesn't do much here. But again... I fear that I am going to see her return in this episode frying on the floor. And that will be horrible, but it doesn't happen. I think one of my favorite moments in this segment is at this party. I love how they, they show the anxiety of with, you know, the withdrawals from smoking. And again, I've never smoked. Stuart, you haven't smoked. I don't know what it's like, but I love when he goes to this party. It's seemingly everyone's chomping on a cigar, smoking a cigarette. <laughs> we got paintings that are smoking while their eyes are moving. Yeah. Children smoking. And then I love, like, you get these, you know, server with this platter of like deviled eggs and then like the <laughs> eyes are watching. Again, it's campy looking, but I like this. I like this feel. This This is fun for me. Every breath you take. They got to even throw that in there. Oh, great use of song. And when Donetti's coming down the stairs in that silver silk shirt singing it, just (laughs) hysterical. And I do have to point out, you mentioned that party. Did you guys recognize, and I just, I had a major facial recognition moment, James Rebhorn. I don't know who that is. I didn't know the actor's name. I had to look him up, but I knew that that guy who was offering James Woods a cigarette at the party and who ends up like smoking 20 at once was the guy from Meet the Parents and ID4. He was the president's smarmy aide. He's he's been in a ton of stuff here. I'm like, who's that actor with the bad comb over? I know that guy. Didn't know that guy, but yeah, he's working. It's the right tone to take here. It's it's surprising. It's not a Stephen King tone, at least how we've established it in The Shining or Salem's Lot, but I'm really thinking it's working for him. It's allowing Stephen King to be gleefully evil as opposed to really trying to scare me. If this movie tried to play it straight, I don't think it would work at all. I would not be scared by these mobsters, but by playing it this way, I'm laughing and I'm really enjoying the dark humor. 
And I love the moment when James Woods breaks down and has that cigarette on the drawbridge. And Donetti's guy is right next to him. He looked over and checked the car next to him. It was just a couple making out. But then once he starts smoking, it turns out, no, it was all a ruse. He was under surveillance. And now his wife is going to be kidnapped and put in the cat room. Yeah, I love James Woods, like, look, like, he's crouching down in this car, there's, there, I guess they're waiting for a drawbridge to lower, and he, he's just, the, the smile he has, he puts sunglasses on, like, that's gonna help, I, I don't know, I could tell he's having fun with it, and I'm having fun too, I, I love the betrayal here. In this day and age, you would think that they'd have cameras on him, or, you know, microphones, or something like that, you would think even in, in your car, with no one looking, that you wouldn't get away with it, if, if someone were... 24-hour surveillancing you. But, yeah, he thinks he's getting away with something. He's a teenager, you know? He's smoking in the boys' room here. I fear what's coming next. I didn't realize it was going to be the funniest scene in the movie. But I got to say, when they get the woman in the room... The static comes on and her hair, (laughs) her hair is doing that. And we hear 96 tears. I'm laughing. This really does feel like a subversive 90s movie. Now, this movie is is way more clever and wicked, I think, than would have been the kind of humor that was on screen at the time. This this really is, dare I say, ahead of its time. Yeah, it would have been considered a really black comedy back then, and now it's just funny. Yeah, she was a dancer, apparently. They hired this woman because she knew body movements, and that's what, obviously, she's not being shocked here. They actually had a blower underneath the cat, and like, you know, used air pressure to send him into the air. But he or she had to mimic the the shocks and the pains. And I don't know, it makes me laugh watching her do this little shock dance. But it only takes the one. I couldn't remember. I remembered this story very well, but I couldn't remember how it ended. I couldn't remember if Drew was going in the cage next. Mm-hmm. I couldn't remember how it ended, but it just took the once. And then he reconciled with his wife and never smoked again. That feels easy. One of the things, you know, what's going on during this whole shocking scene is the cat escaping and we get to see it run out the building and where it's going to, you know, onto its next leg of the journey. I don't know. I feel like that's their framing story. But, man, put that later. I I felt it like broke up the tension here of Woods, like seeing his wife get shock therapy here. I I don't know. It's it's a little thing, but it just it broke it up for me. And I wish it was edited differently. I kind of liked it. I liked the fact that it was reminding us that we would be moving on soon. It helps draw this to a close. I think it's a a close that's premature. I would have liked to have seen him get out of this. I actually thought it would be about him figuring a way to not be under the mob's thumb, but that that does not happen. What we get in the ending, the sting is they're not even going to give him a break when he starts gaining weight after he quits smoking. I mean, everyone gains weight after you quit smoking, right? Well, now they're going to whack him for that. Cut off his wife's finger is what it is. Yeah, what I find weird is that, like, Donetti's, like, saying, hey, if you go above 165, we're going to cut off your wife's little finger. And Woods is just, like, laughing. Oh, you're hilarious. Like, that seemed weird. I'm like, you haven't learned your lesson that this isn't a joke? Yeah, I would think that you would totally believe them if you saw that they were capable of putting your wife in a room and frying her. Why wouldn't they cut off her finger? I agree. that That he was able to laugh it off. I guess he just thought that... He had passed the test at this point. It was what he signed up for. As long as he doesn't smoke, then he's in the clear here. But I'm telling you, this is a pyramid scheme. First, they get you with the smoking. Then they get you to pay for these diet pills. It's just one. Yeah, this really is how the mob would work if they got into this kind of business. (laughs) And I love that they say these are illegal diet pills. Yeah, highly addictive. Yes, very funny. 
And I like that it's the guy that introduced him that's here at the end with his wife. It's a nice symmetry. It's a nice way of closing off the story. This is what I remembered even from my childhood viewing. I don't, I didn't like this episode as a kid. It didn't make much sense to me. But I do remember being spooked by the fact that a toast is raised and someone's missing their pinky. And for me, this is my first time seeing, maybe because I was so taken in with this story, that's how it ended. That that doesn't seem like much of a shocker. I think I was like used to it. I was wondering, oh, how is Woods going to get out of this? And it's going to end up being this whole big thing. And nope, it's like, oh, they weren't joking about cutting off the pinky. Next story, a little anticlimactic to me, though this, I'll say it right now, this is the strongest story for me in this film. It is today. It wasn't at the time, but... I will have to say, my leaving it, I would think that I'd want more. I want to put it out there. You guys may or may not know this. They did do an entire feature, unofficially, based on Quitters Incorporated. We're not going to cover it because it doesn't have the credit of Stephen King. It's a 2007 movie called No Smoking, and it was made in India. It's actually a musical, and I did rent it just to see how they handled the material. And... And does it work as a feature-length film? Uh, I, I'm not going to say ask as a musical, but it's a feature-length. <laughs> you know, I got to say I was a little disappointed. Some of it was just, I think, culturally it was a little weird. I found it a little tedious at two hours. If this one was a little too brief, the two-hour one was a little bit too elongated. It's weird, and it did sort of address what you were talking about with the twist on this was the reason why the friend brought him into this was because they had this policy of cutting off your fingers, and if you brought people into the group, They had this magical process of reattaching your fingers so that you, of course, wanted to, you know, recruit as many people as you could so that you could return to being the functional person you were before they beat you to a pulp. If you're curious, if you like the story, if you'd just like to see Stephen King in a different language, eh, give it a look. I don't know what you'll think of it, but it's it's worth a look. And back to Cat's Eye. For me, this has always been my favorite story, and I think the James Woods, the cover of the police song all of that had so much to do with it this ending it's not a twist ending it's just a oh there's a dismembered finger ending it's kind of a strange ending but yet it is my favorite ending for its segue to the cat you see the missing finger and then it dissolves to a hot dog that is being fed to the cat That's right. The cat grabbed the ferry to the Atlantic City. And this is where I really noticed for the first time the score by a very famous composer, Alan Silvestri, uh, working without an orchestra, working with a little keyboard. But boy, does it not sound like the Back to the Future theme. Yeah, I looked to this guy up because there's some musical beats that I'll talk about later. But yeah, he's done a lot. This this is like a big composer as far as film scores go. Yeah, they didn't know that at the time. They got him young. They got him right before he did Back to the Future. And this feels like warm-up. I dare say it sounds like he recorded the Back to the Future score first as a MIDI. (laughs) Yes, this, this is the demo tape. Yeah, it's definitely demo tape stuff here. I've talked about Silvestri before. Not one of my favorites. I like Predator. I like Back to the Future. That's about it. He's done so much more, and I just find him mostly unremarkable with a couple standouts. This falls into that unremarkable category. He didn't do the rockin' cat's eye end (laughs) song that didn't top the Billboard charts. Somehow. Somehow that was ignored. Uh, I I don't know. (laughs) I'll tell you, if you want to talk about unremarkable, Drew Barrymore's cameo in this segment. What is with that Shirley Temple outfit? Oh my god, that was terrible. That is the worst look for her. She looked bad as Mentally Challenged. She looked worse when she was about to sing Animal Crackers in my soup. Ah, <laughs> uh, you've seen that, that infomercial a lot too, Arnie. <laughs> 
And this is, I think, her most puzzling cameo. For some reason, I accepted it more from a mannequin. But when the TV commercial comes to life, it's a cat commercial. It's a cat food commercial that she's just the little girl starring in. But at some point, she goes all Princess Leia and is like, you're my only hope. It's very weird. It's putting a lot of pressure on this end chapter being worthy of this journey. That's a cat food ad? Yeah, gobblers. They do a little clever thing. They set up gobblers in the third movie. We're going to see it introduced. Okay, because I noticed that somebody's being fed tuna and goat. Yeah. <laughs> what is <laughs> That's tuna what I noticed. and goat? Uh, Billy Goat's gruff reference. It all comes oh, back in the third that... one. It's very clever, that Stephen King. He's got it all worked out. No, no. Why would you buy tuna that has the word goat in it? No one wants to eat goat. <laughs> I couldn't tell if that was human food or cat food. Are you feeding your cat the goat? <laughs> Admittedly, I've never seen dog food that advertises that it's made of horse meat, but it is. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me if there was cat food with goat in it. But that you would make that the selling point. Even Drew in that wig is not going to get me to buy that for a cat. You mean you don't buy your dog that food, curds, and nay? (laughs) (laughs) But all right, to the second story, Atlantic City. Of course, if you're in a gambling city, it's going to be all about gambling. And we are introduced to Cressner, another character actor who I've seen in stuff and don't really know very well. Kenneth McMillan. Always going to be the Baron for me. If you saw David Lynch's Dune, he is the floating fat guy in that one. He haunts my dreams even now for that part. And yeah, I've seen him in a lot of other stuff, but he's the Baron. I know he's a bad guy, even though he's kind of a good guy in his introduction. He's the one betting on the cat when others are betting it's going to get killed. It's a nice turnabout because you do think he's going to be the good guy and this other one's the bad guy. This nameless person betting on the cat's death. But in the cat winning, I don't know if Kressner has some kind of psychic bond with the cat instantly or what, but four cars crash so that the cat may live. This is horrific. I I, I guess it's setting the tone for this next one. That first one was dark, but it was kind of lighthearted. This one I feel is just more dark. And yeah, it starts off with this cat causing this horrible accident. Yeah, I think what it does, and I didn't realize it at the time, but yeah, when we see what he's going to bet on next, it's another life or death stakes, we're going to realize that it is bad. But when I see this, I think, oh, he's rooting for the cat. And since the cat's the cool character, I I think that, yeah, he's going to be the hero here. But no, someone has the line that you guys would bet on anything. And I think that that's really what we're to take away from this, is that this is a man that it's all about the game. He doesn't care about life or death. It's just about making $2,000 off of a cat crossing the street. Or getting revenge on his cheating wife by setting up her tennis coach lover. Yeah, this was a little bit of a shift for me because we jump to Robert Hayes and this woman and she's getting on a bus to go away. He's not going with her. He's going back to face Cressner and... I'm trying to figure out exactly how this all relates. There were drop lines. Kresner was milling through his casino, and someone mentions a domestic problem that Ducky is following the tennis guy and his wife. It's not totally out of left field. There was uh, implications of it coming, but we don't understand what is happening until she's on the bus and Robert Hayes is in handcuffs being taken to the penthouse of Kenneth McMillan. And another character actor, the mobster who kidnaps him and handcuffs him he's been in so much i know him as the gas man from dumb and dumber oh you're talking about uh ducky yeah ducky the black guy that's accompanying him is charles s dutton tv's rock in alien 3 
He had hair. You might, that's probably why you missed it. Yeah, that threw me, the hair. Yeah. This is where the story turns. We realize that Kresner is the bad guy, uh, I think. I mean, on one hand, he's still the wronged husband, you know. We should feel sorry for him because his wife is cheating on him with a younger man. But the challenge that is set up here, the fact that he's going to frame the tennis coach by putting heroin in his bag and calling the cops on him unless he walks around his penthouse. You got to think that's a rap you can beat, don't you? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I'm like, I, I'm going to take my chances with the law here. You, you got motive for getting framed here. I Yeah, I would have totally just said, yep, call the cops. We'll do it that way. Well, that's no fun. Plus, he gets $20,000. I would have been out on the ledge, but that's just me. <laughs> what good's $20,000 if you ain't around to spend it? Yeah, admittedly, I'm not saying it's the best way to make money, but donors, I would do it if, uh, you know, there was a $20,000 offer. I, I, Shit, I, I'm partially willing to write that check and partially realizing it's the end of now playing when you take that fall. <laughs> I don't have the best balance. It is true. That may be why he's willing to take that check. <laughs> yeah. You're no tennis pro. No, and no, you definitely didn't have that in me either. But I will say this is where the story really starts to look like something else. Even though I read the ledge, what I see from this point on is something to tide you over. The segment in Creep Show that had another veteran from the movie Airplane. Leslie Nielsen. Yes, Leslie Nielsen was forcing a couple, his wife was cheating with another man, uh, into uh, an impossible odd stakes, and they end up turning it around on him. I do feel like, we'll cover Creepshow later, but I do feel like that is the story that this feels, it feels very familiar to me. And I think that's points off on the ledge, is that it doesn't have maybe quite the spark of originality that Quitters Inc. did. Yeah, I mean, for me, this one, it, it is literally about this guy walking in a circle, it takes too long. This should have been a way shorter segment, in my opinion. I mean, we get Kressner acting like a child, like doing all these weird pranks. Oh, I love that. I love his delivery. I want to keep you on your toes. This could be a boring segment if you did not have Kenneth McMillan as this jester in it. Really, I feel like the most painful thing here is that pigeon. Boy, when he's just like that peck, 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 peck. Oh, and the bloody sock, I know it's just like a little hole, but to me, that's the most violent thing in this segment here. I can barely stand to watch poor Robert Hayes try to walk around a shit-stained ledge while a pigeon is pecking his ankle. I can't even take that serious. I, I was cracking up. I'm like, just kick the thing, step on it, do something. Like, as much time as they give to that pigeon, I thought he was going to team up with General later on. <laughs> I did like the pigeon as a deterrent. And, of course, it ends on the funniest thing, that sound effect. of It sounds like a chicken balking when they kick the pigeon off the ledge. I mean, I actually am really liking this in spite of some really atrocious blue screen effects that make me realize that he's not very high up. Nope, not blue screen. That is the one thing I'm really impressed with this. The perspective is cheated, but those are miniatures. He is actually in frame with all of those things. There is no matting. There is no blue screen going on in this at all. And I think it's kind of cute. I mean, it takes away the fear element, but then again, Cat's Eye hasn't been that scary for me. So, I don't know. I think it's impressive. I don't find this boring, though, that he's going in a circle. I mean, you're walking on this ledge. To me, it carries with it this measure of suspense. And the fact that if you stop for a moment, Crestor's going to come out with his horn or his fire hose. I just really found this to be 
as menacing and amusing, if not as intelligent as Quitters Inc. It was more one note, but still really fun. I think with Quitters Inc., in a short amount of time, they're able to make me care about Wood's character, even if it was more for concern with his wife and child, that they're going to get hurt if he messes up here. Okay, it's a dude banging another guy's wife, and he took this bet. Probably not the smartest thing. He probably should have just got the law involved. I agree with Jacob on that, and I think the difference is we identified quickly with James Woods because we were truly afraid of what Alan King would do to the people that he loved. Here, I know that if Robert Hayes should slip, he's going to fall five feet and then crack on a cute little soundstage. It just it doesn't look real enough to play into my fear of heights. I can do that. I've seen movies where I get really scared when people are out on ledges. They said that they originally started with a $10 million budget, and then throughout the production, it got shaved down, and this is where they lost it. They lost all of the money to make this and realize this segment. I I don't want to sell it as being, in my opinion, as good as Quitters, Inc., but I do like it. I think one of the big problems here is I keep going to Kenneth McMillan. I'm not a big Robert Hayes fan. I like Airplane, but... I don't think he's doing that good here. He doesn't bring the charismatic everyman the way Woods did to his smoking plight. Yeah, if Drew Barrymore is going to show up every time, why not just have James Woods be the dad or the guy in trouble all the time? I could accept that if they're going to do this weird parallel story thing. Just have the same cast. I got a question. Maybe I missed it, but I in the first and the third segment, Every Breath You Take plays. Did they do it in this segment? Did I miss it? No, I didn't hear they, it. they didn't play it in this one. That's a bad choice. That that seems like something you played throughout to tie these things together. Well, no, I liked it in the first one, though, because he was under constant surveillance. And so it's, I'll be watching you. In the third one, it makes sense. And it didn't hit me till this watching because the troll stealing breath, every breath you take, it has nothing to do with a ledge. Yeah, yeah they, they couldn't find some line to fit in there and make it work. This guy could have been a pool hall ace instead of a tennis coach. <laughs> I agree. They could have worked harder to tie all the stories together. I kept thinking that if indeed Kenneth McMillan is a mobster, why not have a picture of him back in the office of Quitters, Inc.? That, you know, it's the same family or something. You know, they could have done closer ties. They could have made these worlds feel even closer. But, you know, it wasn't in vogue yet. You know, Pulp Fiction hadn't come out yet. We didn't have such tight storytelling. It it was enough just to have the cat, I think. And Again, we know who the bad guy is because the cat doesn't like Kenneth McMillan anymore. He's poking out on the ledge. He's rooting for Robert Hayes to make it all the way around. And he does. There's not much question in that. The true twist ending is that Kressner killed his own wife and puts the decapitated head in there a full decade before Seven. I was impressed with that. I did like that twist. I knew, you know, you know there's something coming because Kressner's like... I said I'd keep my word. You're like, okay, so now you got to listen to the language because he played with words here. And yeah, he throws that bag of money and outrolls the head. I, you know, this kind of grindhouse feeling, you know, it's slimy, it's gross, it's dark humor. But that's what I would expect with this kind of anthology. And so as much as I didn't like this trip around the building, you know, I did like this climax with this head being thrown out. Yeah, it's a great twist. It's added for the short story did not have it. It's just implied that they're going to send her or did send her to the morgue. Actually cutting her head off and having it being in the bag full of money that he wins is a step much more wicked. Again, this movie feels ahead of its time. It does feel like it out 7-7. Yeah, it really adds to that line when he says, you can leave with my wife. Well, he means it with the head. 
he's not a Welsher on the bet. He's just a poor loser. But it's the cat again. This time, I think he's got a more active role. He's the, actually the reason why the hitman slips and Johnny's able to get the upper hand here. When he returns to the apartment, they've basically been counting on the fact that he could, in fact, make it around the ledge. And so they're waiting with guns, but Johnny gets it. And did he kill Ducky? I don't remember what happened to Ducky. Yeah, he he shot Ducky and had Charles Dutton stuck around. It wouldn't have been enough. But because Rock left and it's just Ducky and Ducky gets it. And Albert, this other guy that's been hanging out. Oh, yeah, I forgot about Albert. He gets it, too. But now Cressner has to go out on the ledge, and that is the wonderful poetic justice of an ending. And of course, Cressner's not going to make it. There's no thought. It's the pigeon, though. The pigeon's what gets him. Yeah, I can't believe they brought the pigeon back. Just kick the stamp on its head. It's a pigeon. But it's a three-inch ledge. You can't just be flinging your appendages around, Jacob. There's no way. I get it. You wouldn't want to do any excessive movement. You wouldn't want to be kicking something if you're tight roping around a building in the wind. I totally get it. I like that they bring the horn back, too. You know, at a certain point, he was honking a horn at him, and it falls and honks. Well, when Kresner takes his spill, we don't hear a splat. We hear a honk. Uh, and I groaned. That's what you heard from me. I, and that Okay, you said there's no blue screen when they're climbing around this building. Come on, when that falling effect... This is like okay. the tallest building ever. Yeah, all right. Obviously, that was not wire work. But I'm just saying, in general, <laughs> give some props to the model makers, not the map makers. The work is done on screen. You could have walked in the set and seen exactly what you're seeing on screen. It's just the perspective's cheated by the way they use the camera. And with that splat, we go to our third story, the one that does not have a literary counterpart created just for this Mainly because King wanted to do Sometimes They Come Back, and De Laurentiis said, no, that can be its own film. I don't think even Dino saw it being a trilogy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know any of those films. I have read the short story. Very curious as to how they can make that go for not one, but three Sometimes They Come Back movies coming in our near future. It was originally going to be remain a short attached to this. I think they were going to throw it into Creepshow, too. I think they always had ideas about making that one, but for whatever reason, it'll end up being a TV movie. And we'll be given the promised Drew Barrymore star vehicle. Finally, she's no longer just a phantom begging for help. This is the one that's going to really give us Drew Barrymore movie star. And I gotta say... At the time, she's eight years old in this movie. I probably wasn't much older, and this was my favorite. This was the one that I remembered loving. Oh, Stuart. Two stories before were really, really boring. But this was exciting because <laughs> it's got a troll, because it's got action, because it's got really everything that you want, right? <laughs> I saw this when I was young, maybe not eight years old young, maybe I was 11 or 12, but I know that this was never my favorite segment. I think The Ledge used to be my least favorite, because I just found it to be very one note, and yeah, this had a troll. Yeah, that's cool, that's what you want, right? <laughs> and a year before Troll, the movie, they're they're cutting edge again. I guess our eight-year-old demographic could write in and tell us if it's cool. <laughs> Kids, yes. you should not be listening to this shit. <laughs> but, you know, this is King trying to do Gremlins, right? The Gremlins had come out, and he's writing for Drew, and this is what's in the popular culture. Little monsters, that was kind of the trend here. I, I get the impulse, and I loved it as a kid. We'll talk about the quality in a minute, but I just want to say, it feels like a scratch-the-record moment that we've had two stories about mobsters and vice, things that, that were non-horror, 
and all of a sudden we're in a world where a cat is is trying to attack a <laughs> knife wielding troll. I mean, that is a step way beyond where we ever were before, and it makes this feel weird. I got to say, it just doesn't fit into the world they established here. Maybe if they had had the troll in the beginning, it might have been more of a setup. But I, I just say because the other stories did not have anything more than gangsters. Now that we have a monster here, it feels like this should have been in Creepshow, not in Cat's Eye. Yeah, this this is a super bad idea, what I'm going to say, but it's an idea, I guess. I mean, at least show, maybe this troll is the one that was whispering into the air of these mobsters to do the ledge <laughs> thing and to do Quitter's thing. Super bad idea, but something. Like, why is this the ultimate climax? I, again, this is an anthology, but they've tried to tie this together. There's this mystery. Drew keeps calling out, and it's over this little troll why are we focusing on this now it, it's a big left turn for me yeah whatever we think of this story let's all agree it doesn't fit with what came before the last two were really very grounded i mean they're horrible situations but walking on a ledge and being put on an electric floor all very plausible and i mean they were both the same villain i mean it was Real human beings that were forcing innocent men or semi-innocent men into a compromised position. It felt like a story about vice. And now you've changed the main character, you've changed the villain, you've just changed everything. Yeah, and this is why I sometimes wonder if that restored prologue where you have the crazy machine gun wielding mama... <laughs> Maybe if she was a mobster! <laughs> Maybe it would at least make this feel less what the fuck, than it does right now, where you get into this domestic drama with this mother who has this strange belief that I only know from this movie, and I did Google my research to see if people really believe that a cat would steal a child's breath. Haven't you seen Lady and the Tramp? When I was a child, I don't watch Disney as an adult, thank you. Yeah, neither do I, but I remember that being the deal with, like, the Siamese cats. Maybe I'm transplanting my memory of this into that they stole breath i don't remember that i always thought this was real but i only heard it in this movie but i believed this movie when it told me this i believed that that was a folk tale that many people must understand and since i didn't grow up with cats i felt lucky i guess i believed they were capable of it i'll tell you this my grandmother firmly believes firmly and she will yell at you if you argue it that cats give children leukemia <laughs> Her niece died of leukemia. Her niece had a cat. Ergo. Oh, therefore it's true. <laughs> <laughs> but I did Google this, and it turns out this is an old wives' tale that started in the 1600s, and it may have some basis in truth, because in studies over the past many years, there is one case where a cat fell asleep on a kid's face. <laughs> oh, one case, yes. Based in truth. That's how rumors start. So it's possible that since cats like to sleep on warm things and people would put cats in the cradle with the baby, that the cat would just curl up on the kid's face and cause it to suffocate. And then not using any logic, they go, it stole the baby's breath. And thus we have a movie. And let's face it, cats are just intrinsically kind of scary. Not all of them, but, you know, the black cat is something we see brought out at, at Halloween time all all the time. I mean, yes, and as we were shown with Catwoman, you know, there's that whole Egyptian tie and the mystery. <laughs> oh with yes, the cats. let's go back to that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I'm going to give that much credence. If you're 
citing science from the 1600s, I can pull out Catwoman. <laughs> you can pull it out, and then you can put it right back, sir, where you found it. At the bottom of the, of the kitty litter. The cats are scarier than dogs. It took a bat to turn a dog into a monster in a king story. I can believe a cat's just born evil, just waiting to, you know, take your breath. That just feels in their character. They love their owners differently. Of course, cats love their owners, but it always feels different. And there's always a certain mystery to a cat. I've had both as pets, and I do feel about them differently. Cats are just, yeah, they're they're unknown. And I will say this, even now when I watch this, and we get to the end of this, I'm not sure what General's intent was all along. I do wonder if maybe he isn't just hoping for the right moment to suck Drew Barrymore's life out of her lips. No, I'm never wondering that, because we've seen him, he didn't like Kressner, the bad guy. We feel sympathy because he was getting shocked. We see him, I don't know, heeding to the words of mannequins and girls on TV to go help someone. I, I, I guess if we wanted to be tricked into thinking this cat was going to steal the breath, they should have played it up through this framing story better. Yeah, I never think the cat's bad. I just think the parents are bad, especially when... They decide, we're going to kill the cat. Take it to a shelter where you see the ashes of dead animals yes. coming out the smokestack. Yeah, it's like a concentration camp. It is not an animal <laughs> shelter. It is clearly a crematorium. It's like, come here to burn your cat. It's like tomorrow. They bring it in. It's like, yeah, tomorrow you're going to get it, cat. <laughs> it's like you said, cats are evil. Why wait for an adopter who will never come? <laughs> But the troll's pretty crafty. I mean, he does frame him really good. There's bloody paw prints. There's a dead bird. <laughs> I can't blame the woman who is prejudiced against cats because of her mother's wives' tales. That, yeah, that she would want this cat out of her daughter's life. She didn't really want it in there. She sees it killing a bird in the yard. I totally understand why she's ready to take it away. But it's going to kill Amanda. Now that the cat's gone, who will protect Amanda from this really bad... <laughs> Rear projections? Troll. Was this a dwarf, a full-size dude in a suit? Yes. This is where all the money for this movie went. Sad to say, because it doesn't reflect it, but the most expensive segment by far is this, because it's a four-foot person who is on a stage where they built the set super large. It shows. I mean, it really, really does show. Yeah. They they had to, to build a giant set here. And so, you know, yes, there is obviously some superimposition when you got Drew's feet and all of that. But by and large, it's a small actor with puppet effects. And I want to say, God, I love Carlo Rimbaldi, the man that designed the troll. I think it's a cool looking troll. He did E.T. He did Alien. I mean, he designed the puppet. Obviously, Giger drew the, and conceived the alien. But he is an effects maestro, close encounters. I like the man's work. And... This is good. I'll give it this. The troll has a wonderfully articulated face. Yeah. Yeah, they spent so much time just showing him snap his jaws over and over. Because he could, and he could snarl <laughs> that lip, and he could scowl. But why the hat with the bells? That's not He's scary. He's a troll! He's is a that troll. what trolls do? Yeah! Are trolls jesters? I missed that. <laughs> yeah! Well, you know, there is this Billy Gross Gruff thing. At one point, Drew mentions it. She's having nightmares. It makes me think fairy tale. His outfit makes me think that he comes from a folklore world that threw a portal through the wall. None of this is explained. And again, this is a failing of the writing. I don't want to have an explanation for why the troll is in the wall. I think we need something. <laughs> well, if, what if, is if... the explanation? He got sick of living under the bridge, so he moved into the house? <laughs> 
He followed the goat's food. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why. I don't know why, except maybe it's, he's, that trolls have spent a lifetime framing cats for their own crimes. Maybe every time you hear about a cat taking a child's breath, it's really a troll and they've just gotten a bum rap. Would have been neat if that was part of the story. I don't know that anything in a prologue could have set that up any better than it's done here. But I like this troll. I think he looks cool. He's kind of funny and he's kind of scary. And that's what you want in this segment. He's scary if you're eight. Yeah. If we hadn't just done gremlins, I wouldn't have noticed this. But now I realize who the person doing this voice, I looked it up to be sure, it's the voice of Stripe. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah, I'm hearing this, and it's just like, yum, yum. I'm like, that's Stripe. Well, I definitely got a Gremlins vibe off this whole segment. Again, I think it's probably what they were hoping to do. This is the Drew Barrymore Gremlins after Drew Barrymore's E.T. Yeah, you you even get the... Well, in an attempt at humor, I think Gremlins was much more successful with this troll, you know, tickling her feet with the feather on his cap and falling into, I guess that's a drum he falls into and has to climb up the bed again. Again, I guess this is entertaining if you're eight. It's entertaining. What about when he gives the fuck you motion with the hand? Not the finger, but that whole L-shaped arm thing, the up your ass. It's a silly villain now, obviously. But I was more or less okay with this now. I mean, certainly when he's sucking the breath out and she's coughing and she can't scream, I'm still fine with this segment until the cat comes back. (laughs) They have to stage this battle. I feel bad for Drew. Really? Yeah. I mean, Drew, this is her vehicle. And she's just sitting there, go, General! Go! The cat gets the spotlight. You know it's the cat getting the spotlight because, like, when he escapes the animal shelter that score swells up big like that like back to the future moment you know the getting in the car heading towards that lightning rod like i'm like wow they really want us to be cheering for general here and it's a cat i don't care i mean it's the action i mean we talk about actions action movies a lot we've never discussed animal i maybe this is the most successful cat versus troll battle that has ever been filmed it may be the only cat versus troll battle <laughs> i haven't seen troll 2 maybe there's another but what well, i can tell you everything in troll 2 is less successful than this movie watching this through adult eyes this is very very poor i wish that they have a more credible battle it's it is unfortunate yeah, I mean, he's he's being lifted up into what with helium balloons as the cat paws at it and spins him around. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Very clear when it's a real cat, you know, with a prop on a string. And as much money as they thrown at this, it wasn't worth it. I wish they had had a different battle. I don't know what it could be. Maybe the cat could be transformed into who he really was. You could have it be more fairy tale. I don't know. I know that this looks very, very silly to anyone that is not eight years old. But the movie ends on the weirdest note yet, because the troll is defeated by being tossed into a fan blade, and the parents come in and see the troll remains, and pick up the knife that looked a lot bigger when it was in the cat than it does in the father's hand. And they realize General protected their daughter, and so the cat will be one of the family. And then as the parents and Amanda sleep, General goes up, and it looks like the cat's gonna steal her fucking breath. Yeah. Even today, I don't understand what I'm supposed to get out of that moment, except that maybe the twist ending is we thought he was coming back to protect her, but maybe he's just the one that wants to eat the breath. Yeah, here's the thing. Okay, there, there's your one twist. There's got to be a twist ending. I mean, with this kind of film, that's what you do. 
I thought maybe the mom is secretly a troll and that's what's up with her anti-cat <laughs> agenda. I thought she was going to like, you're going to see some connection with maybe them. Maybe she'd wear bells on her head. Yes. Or they wouldn't see the troll remains that would have vanished. And they're like, oh, our daughter's crazy. We got to put her. Maybe she ends up going to that special school that retard version of Drew Barrymore was at at the beginning. You know? Yeah. I wonder if they thought about having steal the breath and then realized that, A, you've killed your star. And B, that's a little bit too evil for a kid's movie. That would, as a kid, that would have been highly alarming to watch Drew Barrymore die by the hands of her savior. But I would have liked it better now. It would have played better. Well, it wouldn't though, because we'd be wondering why the cat wasted so much fucking time to save the kid just to kill her. Yeah, we don't know what the cat's doing anyway. We don't know about these astral projections of Drew Barrymore. I mean, there's so many questions that we're unfortunately asking about this film. The mythology, air quotes around that, is uh, <laughs> left unexplained, and I do think there's a reason why Stephen King never published this story. Uh, it would have to be a picture book, I think, for younger minds, but as a story, is not there. This is entirely about the special effects and wonder, and even with that, is only partially successful. Well, I'll tell you, Stuart, I'll have a little bit more insight, because this story is finally getting published. What? In a book compilation called Scream Plays, Stephen oh. King's original script for this, and the ending was changed quite a bit during production, but in Scream Plays, I will get to read King's original script, and I will be reviewing it over at Books and Nachos. Okay, but it will be in script format. He's not turning it into a prose. It's not going to be a short story. I believe it is in script format, but as you said, it is actually illustrated. <laughs> well, yes, that doesn't surprise me at all. I, you know, I'm always curious to know what else they might be thinking. It does feel a compromise. This conclusion here, it doesn't feel very king. But does the film, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Cat's Eye, Jacob? I mean, for me, this comes down more or less to some simple math. You, we got this framing story. By the time we get to the end, I, I think it's unfortunate that they tied the framing story so much into this third act. It's not just a frame. It, it's more of a vehicle for this cat to get from one end of the film to the other and then play a major part. I don't think that whole thread is satisfying, but I can look at this film as three pieces and just do the math. Recommend, not recommend each one. And how does that turn out at the end? Because I, I think, really, if you're going to watch this, you're going to watch it for three different stories. i probably not going to get too tied up in the mythology of <laughs> trolls and cats or do that because that's what Now Playing does. But for me, Quitters, Inc., strongest segment in this film, that's definitely a recommend. That's the highlight of this film for me. Then we get to the end, general, I guess we're calling it. That is the weakest moment. That's definitely not a recommend. So it all comes down to the ledge. Which way will I go? And and it looks like I'm going to slip off the ledge here because that segment, it's a weak not recommend for that middle part, but still a not recommend. I just, it dragged on a little for me as he wandered around this building. Ultimately, I, I watched this and yeah, it's fun for eight-year-olds. They might enjoy this. Watching this as a teen or an adult, I don't think you're going to get a whole lot of fun. I don't think it's an awful film or an awful anthology. Just the last two segments don't really work for me. So it's a weak not recommend for me. Oh, Jacob. You're going to be begging to get back on that ledge when we get into the rest of the night shift. I kind of agree. When we're doing Children of the Corn 666, you will be wishing for the heady days of Cat's Eye. We can say that with almost every retrospective. When we're doing Prime Directives, I would maybe wanted to go back to Robocop 3. 
Really? Really? Yes, yes, but I gotta look at it as a film on its own. I can't compare it to Children of the Corn Part 900. Stuart. Oh, to me, this is a, a happy surprise. I thought that coming back to this, it would be pretty bad. Dino De Laurentiis, I just, I didn't imagine much. But I remember having affection for it as a kid. I have affection for it now. But for different stories. I do think Quitters, Inc. is clearly the best one now. And The Ledge is a pretty good follow-up, but a little less surprising. But it has a few cruel twists of its own. The problem this time really is that troll one, but it's not so bad. It's just kind of silly. I mean, I, I, I kind of laugh with it. I kind of laugh at it. But none of these are horrible. And I did have a good time watching the whole thing. I, so, so far, as much as I've dreaded returning the night shift, it's been two green arrows. I liked the student films enough, and I like this one even more. So, if they can keep up this quality... I don't think Mangler 3 is going to hit this quality, but we will see. I think that this is still the best of all the Night Shift movies. It'll be the bar to surpass from this point forward. So, recommend. And I agree. I mean, I, like last time, have to do the math like Jacob did. And if we're breaking it down, Quitters, Inc. gets a strong recommend from me. It does everything right. The Ledge... It's a solid recommend from me. It's not as good, but it's still really good. And so right there, I'm already two recommends, so we're giving it a green arrow. But how would I rank general? I'd probably give it a weak recommend, just because the troll is kind of fun. So I would actually give all of these, if they were individual movies, somewhat of a pass. Although general, maybe if it was standing alone, I, I might read Arrowhead if I was cranky that day. Yeah, it's not for me. That's what is clear. It's no longer for me. But there was a time in my life where that was much, much better than those boring Ledge and Quitters Inc. I do think it's just a developmentally wherever you are. The Drew Barrymore fans when she was eight would have liked that one. The Drew Barrymore fans now, uh, you're going to like the ones where she's not in it much. And so, yeah, I'm going to give this a recommend. Is it going to be the best of the Night Shift collection? We'll have to revisit that in December. <laughs> but this one is very good, and I'm really glad that it held up. Because sometimes my fear with now playing, going back to movies I loved as a child but hadn't seen in so long, is that I have that experience where, oh, I used to really like this, and now my memories are completely ruined. But no, this one actually reinforced those memories, and you should check it out, definitely. And I'd say that even if you're not a fan of horror, I know some of our listeners aren't fans of the horror movies we cover, if you like comedy, check this one out. Yeah, that's the important thing to stress, is unlike any other Stephen King that we've covered, this one is, well, maybe Return to Salem's Lot, but he had nothing to do with that. This is Stephen King showing his comedy skills and doing it well. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. We will be back next week with the last film in this kind of hodgepodge Night Shift collection, Graveyard Shift. Not the last Night Shift film, but the one that they didn't make any sequels to. God knows, I don't know why. Every other one got two or three more of them. But because they only made one Graveyard Shift, we're doing it next. Everything else had a follow-up. Everything else was turned into a franchise from Night Shift. This one's standalone. I've seen it. I'm pretty sure it's going to support my theory that Cat's Eye is the the one to beat, but uh, I'll revisit it. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. Until next time, we'll see you on the night shift. Show's over.
Everybody go back to doing what you were doing. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. It's more fun than human beings should be allowed to have a what? Come to the Now Playing Podcast website to hear our reviews of other Stephen King films, such as Carrie, The Shining, and Salem's Lot. Hey, boys. Come on over here. And keep coming back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new review in our Stephen King retrospective series. We have a great deal to talk about, Mr. Billings. Come back tomorrow and we'll talk some more. At our sister podcast, BooksAndNachos.com, you can hear Arnie's reviews of the original books and short stories on which these films are based. College Boy. Also in the archives, you can hear reviews of other films, including A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Star Trek, The Avengers, Halloween, Terminator, and more. Hear hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. How could this thing go on all these years? Why doesn't somebody know about it? Unless that God they worship approves. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Go on, Dickie, before you lose your guts. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. I watched your work, and I like your style. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. We've got a hell of a problem, but we here have developed a hell of a solution. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Do you want another one? Yes. Please. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. Good morning, boys and girls. Did we all remember to bring our homework assignments today? A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. We didn't? Well, we know what happens to little boys and girls who don't do their homework. Now Playing's Stephen King retrospective series is edited by Dylan and Arnie. Gonna be a mess. No doubt about it. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Bravo! Now we can get you that audition on Star Search. The film discussed in this podcast is the property of the original copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. You think it's going to make a difference? No, but it may make the judge happy. Now Playing Podcast is not affiliated with the makers or distributors of these films. Take it from me. There's only one way to deal with their kind. On their own terms. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. When you've been in the business as long as I have, you get to know every line. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. I think I'll sleep now, John. You do that.
We're, we get a lot of references. You mentioned the Cujo. Uh, Carrie almost runs the cat over. Later, we're going to see Christine. Crystal. You mean? Oh yeah, I'm, yeah. Yeah, Carrie. Sis- yeah, that was- Sissy's face that comes running out. <laughs> I'm like, I don't, I don't remember seeing Carrie in this. I got yeah. the Cujo Christine reference. <laughs> sci-fi going on in here unless you're counting this electrified floor that's not sci-fi i got one in my basement okay well we never know what you and the wife are into then (laughs) i didn't necessarily like ducky's little catchphrase what was it hay is for horses i don't know i didn't even hear that once what he says every time before he hits johnny i i don't have it in my notes oh I, i don't know I thought, uh, all right, then it is obviously not uh, worth going into. Why wasn't that? It was just a really annoying line, but I didn't write it down. I thought I'd remember and don't. (laughs) Arnie, I got to ask, is this what gave you the idea about Buggy Betty? (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't think I'd seen this at that point. Okay. I'm not even sure if this was out at that point. All right. I just, we had a similar. I didn't walk around any ledge, but there was a similar moment in our friendship around this time involving a Garbage Pail Kid card. And, well, if you've heard our Garbage Pail Kid show, then you know all about it. And it's rectified. Yep, you yep. did fix the problem. It took me 25 years. <laughs> yes, it took a while, and I still won't let you forget it. But I thought that was the final note on that. I thought, <laughs> I thought that was done with the Garbage Pail it Kid It never podcast. ends. Never ends. 